0: Hi, welcome to the UWA Alumni Voices Podcast. My name is Kirsty Brooks and I work at UWA within the Agricultural and Environmental Science teaching facilities. I graduated with a Bachelor of Science majoring in Marine Biology and then I came to UWA and completed my Honours year uh, majoring in Marine Biology in 2012. I'm passionate about environmental sustainability and breaking down the barriers for people in understanding its impacts. And that's why today I'm really excited to be interviewing Jess Panagiris. So a little about Jess before we get started. Jess graduated from UWA in 2009 with a Bachelor of Laws, Bachelor of Arts degree, and was then awarded a Rhodes Scholarship to complete a Master of Philosophy in Politics and International Relations at the University of Oxford. She is a campaigner, educator, and passionate advocate for climate and nature and currently works at the Australian Environmental Grantmakers Network in Sydney and an environmental philanthropy manager. Welcome, Jess. Thanks so much, Kirsty, for having me. You're welcome. Um, So yeah, I'm really excited to talk to you today, but I guess I'd like to take it back to the beginning because you're in Sydney now, um, but where have you come from? Where did you grow up and... Tell us a bit about that journey getting to UWA.
1: Yeah, thanks. Um, well, I was very lucky to grow up in Kalamunda in the Perth Hills. Um, so from when I was very little, um, spent heaps of time in the bush up there, swimming in the creeks and climbing trees and really sort of developed my deep love of nature up there. I was raised by a single mum. She was a school teacher, wonderful woman, names Robin Dale. Uh, and, yeah, she instilled in me real love of books and learning. Um, so we never had much money, but we always, you know, had a lot of emphasis put on learning and art. She was an artist, drawing, listening to music. Um, so I feel like I was really, from a very young age, so excited to go to university. It was something that like a very nerdy little Jess always wanted. So. <laughs> Yeah, went to sort of local primary school and local high school and then was really lucky to get into law arts at UWA um, and started when I was, yeah, 17.
0: Amazing. So was that the dream for Jess going through high school? Was it always eyes on the prize for law or was there a bit of flirting with other ideas?
1: Oh, I, um, to be honest, I was the most excited probably about the arts degree part and getting to study philosophy and history because um, I, you know, I was really interested in that. And <laughs> I don't know that I've ever told anyone this, but the reason I wanted to study law was because one of my heroes was Peter Garrett, the frontman for Midnight Oil, and he'd studied law. And I just thought he was great. And if he'd studied law, then I should probably study law. But to be honest, you know, I. You know, in my public high school, not many people went to law. Like, um, and so I didn't really think it was a realistic goal. I kind of put in my application. But I spent way more time agonising over my application for TAFE because yeah. I, thought, I thought I probably wouldn't get into uni and I'd, um, oh. I'd get into TAFE instead. So I was really shocked um, when I, I got my TE marks yeah. back and realised I'd got into law. Um, in those days, we had landlines in our houses and so you'd phone up the phone line to get your your score and, you know, you'd um, press all the little options to to get through to your score. And then when it got read out, I nearly fell over. I was um, pretty shocked and happy and meant I'd got accepted. So, yeah, I was thrilled. And then, like, my life changed so much when I actually started uni. It was a whole new world. Amazing. So. Moving so for those
0: not familiar with Perth, Kalamunda is what about forty k's out of the city?
1: Yeah, well, I think it's actually only maybe twenty five, but it feels <laughs> like a lifetime away because <laughs> it was an hour and a half on three different buses. I remember to get to get from the hills to WA. Wow. Um, look, it was a whole different world, you know. Like I raised by a single mom, went to local public school. I remember orientation week in UWA and the, the car park outside the law school was just filled with like BMWs with P plates on them. And I was to- it blew my mind. Um, I realized I was entering this whole different world. And uh, yeah, it, it really was very different, like very different kind of um, social world to the one that I was used to. Um, but I just remember the joy of hitting the arts faculty and like having these lectures on world history and philosophy and political theory. And I just, I really loved it and meeting so many interesting people from kind of all over the state. um, I remember really falling in love very early with that. The idea of studying and how
0: uh, multicultural or diverse we are here on on campus. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah.
1: It really just, opened my mind and it was something I think I'd been quite hungry for for a long time. So yeah, I was very happy.
0: Yeah. And so what you started, started what you entered into study at UWA, that's what you ended up graduating with?
1: Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So I, yeah, ended up graduating with first class honours in law and in arts and in arts I specialised in um, political science and history. Yeah, cool and
0: the friendships that you make in the undergraduate. I think uh, you sent me through a little bit of a story and some of your besties were those people that you met in those early years of university.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Yeah, some of my best friends um, often acquired through kind of mutual tardiness. So one of my best friends, Michelle Lord, who also um, graduated from law at UWA, I think we became friends because we were always late to class, which is obviously not something to be proud of, but we just ended up always sitting next to each other on chairs at the back of the room because all the other chairs were taken by people that were actually on time. And then we struck up a friendship and she's one of my best friends to this day. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's, what, it's uh, funny where you make those friendships in uh, university, how you end up finding
1: your people. <laughs> Absolutely. And yeah, some of my best friends, but also some really incredible mentors and teachers. I really had incredible teachers both in the law faculty and the arts faculty. And some of them have kind of remained really sort of trusted and important advisors and mentors and have been so generous with their time over the last decade or more now, gosh. So I'm extremely grateful both for the, yeah, the friends but also the teachers.
0: That's awesome. So you've been able to rely on those relationships throughout your career when you're, you know, coming to some
1: of those fork in the road moments or things like that? Oh, definitely. And I just feel so grateful for that because, you know, the world's a big complex place and, you know, you really rely on people that have more wisdom and experience than you and who care to really help you navigate those those big decisions. So yeah, yeah. UWA has been so important to me in all those different
0: areas. Can you think of an example that you might be willing to share of one of those circumstances
1: off the top of your head? Um, oh, yeah, absolutely. So when, I guess, a good example is when I won the roads, um, I had to work out what I wanted to study. And so, you know, the, the kind of a common path if you've won the roads from doing law, is to go and study law again. But I actually knew in my heart that wasn't what I wanted to do. And so I, yeah, I was able to kind of seek the advice and wisdom of um, a bunch of lecturers and mentors at UWA to help me um, pick what I did later. And actually, that's been similar kind of than every big, I suppose, like work or vocational decision I've made since then. I kind of get on the phone to a few of the trusted people at UWA and ask their advice and put it all together and make my next decision. Nice little soundboard you've got for yourself then. Oh, I'm so lucky. Yeah, Yeah, they must yeah. get sick of me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so that, that's a great little lead in then, because the Rhodes Scholarship was something that you were awarded um, after you completed your degree here at UWA, which enables you to go to Oxford to do a postgraduate study. And so... Um, I guess let's talk a little bit about traveling and when, well, let's start with when you first traveled, because I know it's different for everybody and coming from Kalamunda, traveling to Perth city was a pretty big (laughs) leap and then going overseas would be even bigger. And then your experience being able to travel and study at the same time.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, I think the first big trip I did on my own was going backpacking, um, it's a bit of a cliche, but going pa- backpacking and going to India and Nepal when I was about 18. And I I worked three jobs that year to kind of um, get through uni and I saved up enough to get a flight um, over there. Um, not much else. I think I went travelling for three months with about $400 or something, which was, in retrospect, really not very intelligent. Uh, But it it just opened my mind so much. You know, in Australia we are quite isolated from the rest of the world and in Western Australia even more so. Um, And being exposed to different cultures and to kind of mass inequality in those countries and to so many people that are so much less fortunate than we are just really instilled in me such a sense of needing to use your privilege, whatever privilege you have for good, um, and to really appreciate all the amazing things we have in Australia, like our incredibly kind of pristine natural environment, um, like the kind of public healthcare systems we have, the public education systems we have. Um, yeah, it made me very grateful for the, for the things that I, I'm really proud of as being Australian. I'm really lucky to have um, and made me feel really committed to fighting to protect them.
0: Yeah, I think uh, I can completely empathize with that situation as well. Because for me, traveling to Asia, because you said the cliche route, which I was straight away, I'm like, she's going to say Europe. And then you went in India and did you say Sri Lanka? Uh, Nepal. India and Nepal. So yeah, that's still a bit of a path less beaten than maybe Europe and um, I did Vietnam, so that was definitely a, a beaten path or a semi-beaten path when I did it um, about 10 years ago now. But seeing countries throughout Asia and the environmental differences as well and the um, living equality uh, in different countries is so eye-opening. And only last week I went out to a high school uh, to do a bit of an et- Agricultural activity, where we were talking about, I was bringing out the idea of knowing where your food comes from, and uh, basically saying these are we're, we're going to plant these seeds today, and the reason that we're planting these particular seeds because um, I had, what did I have? I had beans, I had uh, cucumber and tomatoes, and I said because these are what's in season. But in Australia, we're very lucky that we get fruit and veg all year round for stuff that's in season and out of season because we import um, things or we grow things in greenhouses. Most countries you go through, you go to wet markets and you're just getting what's in season, what's available on that day. And that's what you've got to live with, um, which is arguably an area that we should all be going to, but um, it's, it was eye-opening for those students to understand that you don't just get apples every day of the week because you want an apple you need to wait for that to be the right time of year to be able to grow particular apples or things like that. So do you think travel might've led into the environmental side of things of where you've gone? Or do you know when that kind of first started becoming a huge part of your life of where you wanted to go?
1: Oh, great question. I mean, like I said, travel really opened my eyes to how incredibly fortunate we are in Australia to have the natural environment that we have. Um, It's so unbelievably beautiful and there's still so many areas. Uh, We have, you know, just so many incredible animals and beautiful trees and beautiful beaches and, um, you know, that that affirmed that what we have in Australia is incredibly special. Um, I think, to be honest, I've always really loved nature. Um, From when I was extremely small, like a story that my parents tell is when I was about two, I just really wanted to go for a walk in the bush by myself. So I took myself off and... Um, walked a couple of k's alone, was really tired because I was two years old, so I fell asleep on a log in the bush. And of course, that made their life hell because then they had to try and find me and they were extremely worried. But I was perfectly happy. I was just sleeping on a, sleeping in the middle of the bush. And that kind of is still how I feel <laughs> about being in nature. Um, but I think, look, I actually am very close to that log that I fell asleep on as a two-year-old. We had this beautiful creek that ran through the bush near where I lived. Um, And I noticed kind of probably early uni that the creek started to dry up and then a lot of the, the tree, the beautiful trees that were by the side of that creek started falling over. And I got really interested in why that was happening. And like I said, I was studying law and I was studying the humanities. I wasn't studying science, but I suppose then I started to get really interested in the science of climate change and what was happening around us. And that's when the stats were coming through from the CSIRO about how the southwest of Western Australia was experiencing the greatest rainfall decline anywhere in in the country and that it was climate-linked. And then I just started, I guess, getting pretty obsessive about wanting to know more and more about climate change and what was going to happen um, and more and more interested in the policy responses because that was sort of more my area was law and policy responses. Um, And that pretty much has set the course because once I graduated, um, I looked around at all the social issues I cared about and I care about a lot of things and had volunteered with a lot of different organisations when I was at uni, Um, refugee issues, First Nations issues, um, social justice issues. But I really thought, well, climate change is going to make all of those things so much worse. And if we don't do something about it now, then um, we're really going to miss the opportunity. So, yeah, I decided to focus on that. Yeah. So that was your
0: time in the UK, was more diving deeper into that whole environmental
1: aspects? Yeah, I wrote, I was really lucky enough to write my thesis on um, kind of liberal theories of intergenerational rights in natural resources. So, you know, we think of environmental problems as something that's so new for us, um, but people have been thinking for many hundreds of years about um, how to, how to kind of fairly divide up natural resources. And so I really wanted to learn a bit about those historical ideas and think about how we can apply them in the present. Um, And what was really interesting about that was just, realising that kind of nowhere in philosophy, including the liberal tradition that we're used to in the West, there there is no justification anywhere for kind of one generation using up all the natural resources for the next generation. Um, Even, you know, from people in the 18th century had no sense of climate change or deforestation who thought the exploitation of the natural world was good. Even they had these principles that said um, one generation is not allowed to use up everything for the people that come after. And so I think um, there's, it's so deeply wired into our kind of our culture's sense of justice um, and equity that we're meant to leave enough and as good for the generations that come after us. And for me, that means it's very clear we need to stop runaway climate change, protect the forests and bushland and rivers that we have now. Yeah,
0: 100%. So that's something that our or prior to our generation, but something that we're really struggling with right now is how we're using the resources that we have available to us and maybe not utilizing our technologies to the full advantage of what we could be to harness some of those more um, sustainable resources as well.
1: Yeah, but, but then again, so obviously the trajectory is bad. You know, the study came out last week, Great Barrier Reef has lost 50% of its coral cover. Um You know at the moment, we are on track to massively overshoot the safeguard rail for climate change um, Australia, for example is a is a global deforestation hotspot uh, there, there are many things that are bad, but what I think is incredible is that, as you said the technology, the solutions are all actually there you know fifteen years ago, the idea that solar would be the cheapest form of electricity in the world you know that's kind of Unthinkable, And now it's just happened in the yeah. last week. So actually the, the solutions are there, the innovation's there. There's been so much heavy lifting done in you know, previous decades to get us to that point. So I think there's so many reasons for hope. Um, and, you know, environment and climate issues are also now just so, so mainstream and so many people care about it. So we, we just kind of need to connect up that passion and that concern with the solutions. Um, and that's something I'm really passionate about.
0: Yeah. Do you feel that education on those issues is lacking as well for the, the the generations? I'm just thinking about something that I go back to is, I think the generation that's going through school now more than ever is more is well educated on these um, problems, but unfortunately they're not the decision makers. The decision makers are your baby boomer generation um, coming through to our generation being vocal. So is it the lack of education and reliance on media to educate us that is maybe um, where we're lacking?
1: Is that anything that you've looked into? I personally don't think education is the biggest blocker anymore. I think, um, as, as we saw after the bushfires, actual concern about climate change and environment was consistently polling around the country is the number one issue of concern. So I think people really know because we had such a horrendous experience in those bushfires, you know, so many people tragically lost their homes, lost lives, lost livelihoods. We lost a billion animals. Um, So many people were choking with the smoke in Sydney. And I can attest to that. It was awful. You'd walk down the street and it's hard to breathe and you'd have ash falling in your hair. And that was for weeks. Um, So I think it really brought home the actual day-to-day consequences of environmental destruction for most people. I think unfortunately the truth is that there are um, some vested interests that have profited for many years from the exploitation of fossil fuels and the exploitation of the natural environment and um, they have stood in the way consistently of um, actually, being able to connect up to those solutions. So I think um, what's really, really important is that we build the power of people. Um, there's so many people now that want action on climate and environment that people come together and they use their power in in all the different ways that we need to see change um, in politics, yes, but also in industry, also um, in the community. So you know. Have a conversation with someone you know about climate change and environment and and the importance of making sure that how you vote and what you consume and the companies you support um, are all supporting climate solutions and environmental solutions rather than being part of the problem.
0: Yeah, yeah, totally agree. I think one thing that I'm learning to do is having those uncomfortable conversations with people that might not have the same opinions that you do, but doing it in a in Doing it in a manner where you can actually have a conversation. It's not an argument. It's a "Help me understand why it is you think that way." Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. And and asking those exploratory questions and hoping that they return the favor and ask you the same questions. And I think that's it. That's a great way to um, help each other understand and build that power is by, yeah, changing helping people to understand I I won't say changing minds I think just helping them understand because if you're forcing them to think differently then you're going to come up with a lot more resistance as opposed to just well have you thought about it this way have you thought you know why those fires were so catastrophic and allowed to impact the way that they did um, at the time of year that they did I think something important that you relayed earlier is that it is a bigger picture. It's not just one year. It is a overall changing mm. trend in seasons. And, uh, in the Southwest of W no W a, our, our winters are, um, drier, but also warmer. Mm. And our summers are just getting warmer, um, and still dry. <laughs> so we're not yeah. getting that rainfall, um, at any time of the year, which has yeah. so many other impacts. So, um, yeah, I think it's, big thing. So that probably takes us exactly to where you're doing, what you're doing right now. So tell us a bit more about um, the Australian Environmental Grant Makers Network.
1: Oh, thanks. Yeah, well, the Australian Environmental Grantmakers Network or the AGN, as it's called, um, is a membership organisation for philanthropists who are passionate about environment and climate change. So I guess the goal of the organisation is to harness the power of philanthropy to help protect the environment and build a sustainable future, um, and I guess the insight comes from that from when philanthropy can connect up with change makers in the community sector, innovators, um, you know academics and experts, then you can see really um, big systemic change. And this is quite a new role for me. Uh, I've spent the last seven or eight years as a campaigner in the More community space. I worked for quite a few years for Greenpeace, working on forest and climate campaigns and then um, led the Wilderness Society's national forest campaign. And, yeah, I have seen that, to go back to your point earlier, massive change is actually possible. Um, And we've had some huge wins for the environment and climate kind of over the last decade. And um, we just need to scale that up.
0: Hundred percent. Yeah, I think it's. Look, I don't know the stats, but in my time of you know beginning my degree in marine sciences to where I am now, I can only say the um, priority and the exposure of this as an issue has grown exponentially. And there's not one person in the world that wouldn't have an opinion on or have questions about climate change. Everyone understands that it's something that is a topic worldwide, and it's funny like talking about COVID everyone said this is something that the whole world can talk about. Climate change is something that the whole world can talk about because it impacts everybody. It doesn't, it doesn't, um, it doesn't discriminate. It's Absolutely. Everybody. And so what, do you have a huge change that you want to highlight? Some. Let's Let's talk about something positive. What's something, what's one of the most exciting things that you've seen in your, your time, your career?
1: Oh, well, I think following on from what you said, one of the most exciting things is seeing climate change and environment go from maybe a little bit of a niche issue that a few kind of scientists and greenies cared about to something that is completely mainstream. And that was reinforced for me recently because I was lucky enough um, to be part of the recent ABC documentary that Craig Recastle ran called Fight for Planet A. So I was in episode three talking about Australia's deforestation and solutions to that. Um, And the response to that show was overwhelming. The ratings were kind of through the roof and then I was just contacted afterwards by so many community groups, local councils, companies, people just desperate for solutions um, on that particular issue which is fixing deforestation and um, storing carbon in the landscape. And that's something I am very passionate about, um, is the need to save the forest and bushland we have and start to restore degraded landscapes. Um, but that that's for that one particular sector, but I'd say across the whole kind of emissions profile, all those sectors, the solutions are there. And that's so exciting. And there's so many people that are wanting to, you know, make sure their money is invested in sustainable investments. They want to make sure their banking is sustainable. They want to make sure that their consumer purchases are sustainable. They want to vote for parties that have good climate policies. And so I think that's the most exciting thing, is that the people are behind it. Yeah, 100%. It's so good to see passionate people in those roles.
0: And I know the people can't see you right now, but seeing your face light up as soon as you um, talk about something, it's yeah, it's. I think I find that the most empowering thing is when you see people who are just passionate about what they do and um, what they're talking about is just yeah, makes all the difference and helps make those changes um, when you're passionate about what you want to do.
1: Totally, and I think in Western Australia it's so obvious because. The natural beauty of Western Australia is so staggering. Um, the beaches, the animals, the forests And so um, I think West Australians just have that experience of interacting with nature a lot. Uh, another thing that's very motivating to me is um, I have two nieces, uh, Eva and Emily, and they're both in high school. And they learn about environment and climate all the time in, in school. And they're just so upset at the idea that, you know, they might become adults in a world that is undergoing horrible climate change. And, where you know, the forests and the fish aren't there. So they get in touch with me all the time because um, they're so passionate. And that helps keep me passionate too because this isn't just about you or I or I happen to love nature or you happen to love the Great Barrier Reef. It's that, um, you know, climate change and environmental degradation will affect the quality of life of our kids and our nieces and nephews um, and future generations. And So, if, even if you don't care about nature at all and you just care about your kids and your nephews and nieces having a nice life, um, then we all have a responsibility to fix these issues. Um, because I would love my nieces, for example, to one day be able to snorkel on the Great Barrier Reef and see live coral. Um, I got to do that when I was four years old and it was, it was one of the most magical things. I'd ever done. Seeing that coral and all those fish, it was like a magical wonderland that as a four-year-old, I just thought was like fairies, which was my reference point at that time. And it breaks my heart that in my lifetime, 50% of the coral cover of the Great Barrier Reef has gone. Um, And so I just think we have all these amazing things to fight for in Australia. 100%. Great lead in. Let's talk about
0: Let's talk about the ocean for a second, just because I'm mm. going to be selfish. And, you know, this is, let me throw one of my fun facts out there, but, you know, the ocean covers 70% of the world and it's one of the largest carbon sinks that we have. But mm-hmm. when it does become a carbon sink, that creates issues because then that create, creates ocean acidification, mm-hmm. which is one of the reasons that we have degradation of corals because corals are actually quite... Um, quite resilient creatures but unfortunately as their as their environment becomes acidic they can't maintain a skeleton Um, so it starts dissolving their skeleton and then they don't have that resilience that they've built up um, to their environment so um, I guess yeah, it's, it's something that's close to my heart to come back to that, realizing it in your own lifetime, which is scary. Mm-hmm. Uh, Thailand is a huge example and Bali is a huge example for me. Um, I was really fortunate to do some work on the Great Barrier Reef uh, when I spent some time in Townsville and mm. there's amazing coral cover there. And it, it's, you, you get all of it because you've got different inputs there from agriculture as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is such a vast system that it has been able to deal with the impacts that we have put on it um, as humans. But then when you go to countries like Thailand and Bali, the conversation completely changes because it's more immediate pollution of your plastics and your fuel from boats and things like that. So seeing those environments change is crazy. Mm. But another, uh, another space I just want to give a quick shout out to the Ningaloo Reef because you don't hear about that on the east coast and that system is equally as amazing you're still getting the same diversity of animals there Um, but I guess the Great Barrier Reef is our leader it's really showing us if things are going to go wrong this is how it's going to go wrong and this is a system that's directly impacted by all of those um, inputs that we're putting into it. Tell us a little bit about the work that you've done up on the Great Barrier Reef so are you Mm. Should we should we say Terry's name? <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, well, I mean, firstly, absolutely. Ningaloo Reef is one of my favourite places in the whole world. And I go around um, proselytising about Ningaloo Reef on the east coast and just saying, yeah, the Great Barrier Reef's great, but also <laughs> have you seen this fringing coral reef? It's extraordinary. Swimming with whale sharks at Ningaloo Reef is one of the, um, the absolute highlights of my life. So I'm, I'm convinced. Um, but I suppose... The Great Barrier Reef is, you know, the largest living organism on the planet. You can see it from space. It's the jewel in the crown of world heritage um, globally. And so the fact that it is in so much danger, I think is just such, is, is the canary in the coal mine of why we need to turn around on climate and environment. Um, and when I was with Greenpeace, I led the Australian Greenpeace delegation to the United Nations World Heritage Committee um, when they were considering the fate of the Great Barrier Reef and what needed to be done um, and was able to, you know, address the World Heritage Committee live on TV, which was like, quite daunting, um, to talk about the threats to the reef and the fact that Australians love the reef so much and we desperately want it protected and we don't want new coal mines being opened up in Queensland with that coal to be shipped out to the coast and then shipped out through the Great Barrier Reef World Heritage Area to be burnt, generating more carbon pollution that is further driving the decline of the Great Barrier Reef. So, being able to deliver that message directly to the ambassadors of the world, directly to the World Heritage Committee, um, and to be able to show that the Australian government response, which is on one hand to say We really care about the Great Barrier Reef and we want it saved and we care about all those tourism jobs and we care, we want our kids to see the Great Barrier Reef on the one hand, but on the other to be opening up new fossil fuel basins, which all the science shows is the one thing that's definitely going to guarantee that the Great Barrier Reef doesn't survive, is not a tenable position. And as Australians, it's our job to hold our elected representatives to account to say, we want to elect people that will protect the Great Barrier Reef as much as possible. Um, and that won't be supporting the opening up of new fossil fuel basins, because it's just, we're past that point. Um, we need to transition away from that. And luckily, as we were discussing earlier, as the International Energy Agency said last week, solar is now the cheapest form of electricity. So let's just
0: get on board. Yeah, 100%. It's time for change, guys. Like, let's
1: be world leaders and not followers. Absolutely. We need that change. And probably the other thing that I've worked on um, that's directly related to the Great Barrier Reef that I am quite proud of and um, that I think is really exciting because it's about solutions, not problems, um, is for the last four years I worked on campaign with an amazing team and amazing group of organisations around the country um, to secure deforestation laws in Queensland. So deforestation which is kind of the the complete removal of forest and bushland cover. And so, when I say deforestation, imagine two huge bulldozers with a big chain strung between them running through the forest and bushland knocking down everything in its wake. Um, That practice has escalated a lot in recent years to the degree that Australia is now a global deforestation hotspot alongside places like the Amazon and Borneo. most of that's happening in Queensland, and nearly 40% of that is happening in Great Barrier Reef catchments. And so after climate change, um, land clearing is a massive problem because water quality is the second biggest issue for the Great Barrier Reef. And um, when you run those bulldozers in Great Barrier Reef catchments, you um, leave the soil open to erosion so that when it rains, the the soil washes into the rivers and streams that go into the Great Barrier Reef and that adds to water quality problems. So um, a big community campaign to get laws in to stop that sort of broad scale deforestation was really successful and those laws came in in 2018 and I was very proud to be part of that. Um, And the Queensland Parliament not only passed those laws in 2018 but um, they also created this thing called the Land Restoration Fund. And I'm particularly proud of this because um, my colleague Glenn Walker and I um, helped design the policy. And and the idea is that you pay traditional owners and landholders um, to undertake projects of land restoration that store carbon, are good for biodiversity and are also good for the reef. And it was a $500 million election commitment. um, And about a month and a half ago, the first $100 million of projects um, was released. And so that's means that community leaders, traditional owners, all these great projects are now happening to start to restore the landscape, which is so essential. And it shows that we can do so many positive things when we come together. Um, And governments do respond to what the community asks for. So, um, it's pretty excited
0: about that. That's amazing. That's so exciting. I hadn't heard about that. So congratulations for your team and yourself and everybody else involved in that. Cause that's, I guess that's the way forward is thinking about these lands that we have cleared that aren't being used or would just could be used in a better way um, for sustainability. Let's think more critically about that. And let's, in, let's invest in that. Cause yeah, Absolutely. as I said before, like the, the follow that, The domino effect is, you know, you do one thing, there's a domino effect. It's not just that immediate thing that's happening, you know, pulling down and and deforestation is not just impacting that one landscape, it has this huge domino effect on the um, animals that used to live there, what that land's going to look like going forward, the movement of that land to other places going out into the reef effect on the reef. But then the bigger picture is again carbon store those trees were acting as a carbon store, they were drawing down, Um, they were storing it in the land. Now where is it being stored in the ocean? But now Mm -hmm. the ocean or the in the atmosphere, and now if it's storing in the ocean, ocean acidification. Absolutely. Carbon cycle.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. And from a really positive perspective though, there's a lot of things that are really complicated about climate change, but there's some things that are really, really simple and protecting intact landscapes. Forests, bushland, wetlands, our coastal ecosystems, if we look after them, they're storing carbon, they're doing so much work for us all the time. They are part of the climate solution. So one of the really simple things we can do is make sure we protect those. Um, And then we can tackle, you know, some really complex things like how to manufacture green steel, which is a very exciting prospect, I think. Um, And you know. Dreams-wise, if Western Australia could become, you know, a manufacturer of green steel, I think that is so exciting as a West Australian. But anyway, those things are quite complicated to my mind, but it's very simple to protect the forest and bushline and in- intact ecosystems we have. And it's also very simple um, to be transitioning to renewables mm-hmm. as fast as possible. And yeah. all of those things are now totally within reach. Yeah. That's it. We just need the right people to make the right decisions on it. But we we can we can do that, right? Like our, our politicians, they work for us. Like we elect them. Yeah. Um, we can do that. People that manage our money, like our super funds, our banks, they work for us. We can ask them to be investing in climate and environmental solutions. The companies we buy from. We have huge amounts of power as consumers. We can demand that they be part of the solution and not part of the problem. So I guess I actually think um, individuals, it's easy to feel overwhelmed by these huge things, but we actually have so much power as citizens and as consumers um, to demand the kind of change that we want to see. And, you know, of our institutions as well um, that we work for. We can, we can um, be part of the solution. Yeah. I love that
0: hundred percent. I'm trying my best to be that idea of, you know, one person, you feel like you're not making much change, but if you make that change and many people make the same changes as you one day, it will create that uh, compounded effect that it needs to make, but it needs to start with the small things to grow into those bigger things.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, as someone who studied history, we have made such momentous changes in our society. Um, just take the Rhodes Scholarship for an example. Um, until 1975, women weren't even eligible for the Rhodes. It was men only. Look at the huge amount of progress we've made on um, the progress of women. That women were even able, that I was even able to receive a Rhodes Scholarship, or that you and I are sitting here today, being able to have these conversations as female professionals. That actually, in the scale of human history, has happened in such a tiny period of time. Um, we can, we can make huge systemic changes and so we've just got to do everything we can at the time and then I have every confidence that, um, as Martin Luther King would say, you know, the arc of history bends towards justice but we all have to do our little bit of the work.
0: Yeah. you're full of the pearls. I love it, Jess. (laughs) (laughs) Should we talk about the most uncomfortable thing that you've done in your career and, any benefits and lessons that you might have experienced you might have learned from that experience
1: oh that's such a good question i've done so many uncomfortable things (laughs) being an environmentalist is often very uncomfortable um i i mean going and addressing the un live on tv was uncomfortable. (laughs) Um, And to be honest, I think if it was just about me, I would have been far too intimidated and nervous to do it. But I suppose knowing that I was speaking on behalf of all the Australians who want the Great Barrier Reef to exist and who want their kids to be able to see it, gave me a lot of energy to to be able to do it. um, Because that was extremely uncomfortable. There are so many different community groups and individuals who have been campaigning to save the Great Barrier Reef for decades. So, um, there are local community groups in Mackay who, for example, were against dredging new coal ports for more coal expansion. Um, There are groups all over the country trying to get their banks to divest from investing in the expansion of the Carmichael coal mine um, for context. So, there's activity at the, from the grassroots through to high politics and high business activity all around Australia trying to do everything we can to save the Great Barrier Reef. And Greenpeace um, was running a campaign to try and stop the, the Galilee Basin coal mines being opened up. And we knew that the World Heritage Committee was considering whether to put the Great Barrier Reef on, to take it off the endangered list mm. um, or to put it on. Mm-hmm. Um, and. You know, the preeminent scientists like Terry Hughes were all very clear that the Great Barrier Reef was in huge danger. Um, and the essential thing was that the Australian government not only needed to invest in restoration, but needed to bring in some hard laws and policies to stop the damage getting worse. And one of those things was um, deforestation or land clearing laws, uh, which the Queensland government has come good on, but a lot of them are around climate change. And so I guess my role was um, to talk to people around the world and say you need to keep your eye on the Australian government. You need to make sure that they don't approve these new coal mines and these new coal ports because we know that'll be a death knell for the Great Barrier Reef. And so I was, you know, lucky enough to spend six months, um, I suppose, educating and advocating to the members of the World Heritage Committee around the world. Um, on those points and then um, was very fortunate to be at the actual meeting and then invited the evening before (laughs) to address the committee live. Um, And uh, I had to, I remember I was writing my speech with my team at like 11 o'clock the night before. There were about 30 members of the formal Australian delegation there who'd also be speaking. Um, And when I was given my three minutes, my voice was shaking, (laughs) that's for sure. Um, But I just implored world leaders on behalf of Australians to do everything in their power to kind of hold the Australian Government to account for protecting this world treasure and for doing everything we can to act on climate change, which means not opening up any new coal or other fossil fuel basins. And probably the most staggering thing was I, I got through my three minutes it was all being recorded live. I was so intimidated because this huge room full of kind of delegates and media and so on. Um, and then at the end, they um, they all applauded. And um, apparently that doesn't really happen. And so wow. what I took from that is that the world, including world leaders, they do want to protect the environment. They do want a Great Barrier Reef to have a future. And when you you know, when they're really asked to kind of connect with what they want in their heart, that's what people want all around the world. And we just need to kind of force the people that are standing in the way of those solutions to get out of the way.
0: Yeah. And without all those grassroots movements and everything coming prior leading up to that event, all led up to you being able to have your say at that meeting, have Absolutely. everybody say at that meeting, yeah.
1: Absolutely. And that's the thing, it takes, it takes a whole society, it takes everyone doing their little bit to make these sorts of changes. You know, there's people that work in banks that told their bosses they didn't want to work there anymore unless they said they wouldn't invest in new fossil fuel projects anymore. There's all the teachers who've been educating their students about these issues for so many years. Um, There's... Anyway, I could go on and on and on about all the incredible people in the community that are doing everything they can on these issues. But, yeah, it's a movement. Um, it's yeah. a society-wide movement now and that's so exciting 100 percent. that's amazing yeah and it only takes a small
0: step to make some big changes absolutely so what's next for you because so how long have you been with the AEGN for
1: oh about three months oh you're so fresh yeah very fresh. very fresh um but it, it's it's quite incredible to see the momentum and the scale across society um, for action on climate and environment. And so the philanthropic sector is, you know, their interest in climate and environment has um, been growing hugely. Um, And I should shout out to some very wonderful members of the AGN that are based in Western Australia. Um, And I think, yeah, it's just becoming such a mainstream concern now, climate and environment and people see its intersection with other issues they might be concerned about, like health or education. And so really, you know, the work is to try and bring as many key players together, innovators, philanthropists, NGOs, educators, to to turbocharge the solutions. Um, And so I'm very excited to, to help. All right. So
0: I think we've had a great time and a great chat with Jess today, but I, I do want to get some last words of wisdom. Also for myself, I think one, one of my regrets in life is not doing law at uni, doing some law subjects and getting into that aspect. Um, look, it's never too late. I'm not saying it won't ever happen, but definitely my undergrad, I wish I had have done some, um, some policy stuff as I, I assume you, you probably would have liked to do one or two science-y type units. So Absolutely. there's always that crossover.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Uh, so yeah let's do you have anything that you want to leave the listeners with today anything inspirational or um any words of wisdom i know you've dropped you dropped martin
1: luther king so i don't know how you're getting any we're going (laughs) any
0: better from there but But there's no one more
1: inspiring than that um so i'll I'll be far less inspiring than that but university is such an incredible time to open your mind and just learn from some of the best minds make friends have fun And you will be left with so many options at the end, but I think, I guess my experience is that if you follow your values and your passion, that's the important thing. And the actual specific job title or career path is less important than you feeling every day like you're doing something that you're proud of with people that you want to be doing it with. That's the critical thing. And so um, just please don't get too stressed about the other stuff. Do things you find meaningful and then every day will be will be fun. That's awesome. That's, that's what I'm living by at the moment. So I think
0: that's some good words of wisdom. <laughs> <laughs> good on you, Kirsty. <laughs> Do you have any words of wisdom you want to
1: want to add?
0: Uh, I think, I think in, at the moment, I think have fun is probably the, uh, the biggest thing that we all need to be doing in our current, current state of wherever we are in the world, mm. whatever time you're listening to this, but I completely agree with you. And I, I think, the thing that I'm really realizing in um, my career at the moment and looking around me is the passion and it's passion that will lead you to do a career that you enjoy Mm -hmm. so uh, if university is the way you go keep your eyes open if it's any other path just just follow your passions. And, you know, some of us are lucky enough that we get to do that as a job. Um, other of, others of us might have to do jobs um, just to be able to get that paycheck, but that doesn't mean that in your um, extra time that you can't follow those areas that you're passionate about. So yeah, look around your community and see what else is out there for you.
1: Well said, Kirsty.
0: Thanks, mate. It's been so good to meet you. Uh, And I think we've had a great session and a great chat. And I hope others have found it, um, your knowledge and your wisdom, as useful as I have. It's always great to talk with like-minded people as well as those more challenging conversations. Um, I guess this is our chance to sign off. So for those listeners, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and review us if you've liked what you've heard. And that's over and out from Jess and I. We'll talk to you all next time.